even though there was a Judaizing movement in terms of circumcision, there was never a linguistic Judaizing movement that like to be a Christian, you got to go learn Hebrew uh, to be able to use the Old Testament. They were more than happy to use the vernacular language, even if it had its limitations. Um, they were more than happy to use that because the goal was to spread the gospel to all nations. So that, that from a theological perspective, I think is quite interesting and important. Hmm, yeah. Welcome to the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast featuring Peter Bell and Nick Fulweiler. This is a show about Christian doctrine for everyone from the historic Reformed tradition, delivered by two friends in an unscripted dialogue. Join us as we discuss how the finished work of Jesus Christ changes everything. Are you in the Orange County or Santa Ana area? We are exploring a church plant, Santa Ana Reformed, with the oversight and accountability of Oceanside URC and Reverend Danny Hyde. If you are interested or you know someone who might be interested in the area, please check out our show notes for a link to sign up for updates. Our Twitter or Instagram at GuiltGracePod or Santa Ana URC for the same sign-up link, or simply email us at SantaAnnaReformed at gmail.com. We begin meetings on October 28th at 6.30 p.m. at 4th Street Market in downtown Santa Ana. Now on with the episode. Hello, everyone. Yet once again, it's another day of fresh grace and mercy. This is the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast, where we bridge the gap to Reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure and today is a book club episode. We have Gregory Lanier and William Ross. They're going to be talking about their new book, The Septuagint, what it is and why it matters. And it's published by Crossway. And as some reminders, as always, on the show notes, you can find a link to Crossway to get a copy of this book for yourself. There's also a link to the Society of Reformed Podcasters. That's a group of other like-minded podcasts out there. If you enjoy our show and the content, you'll probably enjoy those shows as well. There's also a Napark Church Finder, so you can find a local Reformed church near you. So with that said, we will jump into this book club episode with Greg Lanier and William Ross. How are you guys doing? Doing good. Yeah, if you guys haven't yet listened to an episode with either of them, don't follow them on Twitter. Um, with their vast follower uh, uh, numbers, but it's Dr. William A. Ross, who's assistant professor of Old Testament at Charlotte, and Dr. Gregory, Gregory R. Lanier, who's associate professor of New Testament Orlando. And if you saw my snafu on Twitter, you'll know that Lanier is not from Charlotte. He's in Orlando. Although I graduated from RTS Charlotte. This is, yeah, which is oh. why I got, I think that's why maybe, yeah, something in the back of my mind, yeah, I got confused. I just thought it was funny that Nick says they both wrote the Septuagint, which is what you wrote, but you didn't write the Septuagint. You wrote the Septuagint. Right. Yeah, that's kind of confusing. Makes people. sense. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, that, that does open up a good question is, is really introducing who did write the Septuagint, when it was, and, and why do so many people not know much about the Septuagint? So we'll start there just kind of with definitions and what it is yeah good question i'll take this one um so what is it and why do people not know about it i think are two different questions but uh they are related i think um best way that i have come up with yet to describe what the septuagint is is to think of a kind of 
collection or even a library, if you will, of ancient translations into Greek of the Hebrew Bible, which of course contains Aramaic as well. Uh, and those translations were produced by um, numerous people, all of whom were Jewish, mostly in Hellenistic Alexandria, but probably some also uh, back in Judea. And they were translated over the course of at least two, probably three centuries, starting sometime in the mid third century and possibly going into the first century after the turn of the era. Uh, so that's kind of a broad, broad definition. Um, it's very broad and that is part of why it's important because if you don't define it as broadly and almost as, as abstractly as we just did, you can get confused and thrown off track pretty fast. And in fact, we, the, the first chapter of the book is what exactly is the so-called Septuagint? Mm. We spent a lot of time just trying to define it and we use scare quotes, uh, scare quotes around it a lot and that kind of thing to try to make it clear that it's not something that you can go buy on a shelf in Cairo in 200 BC or wherever. Um, it, it's not quite like that, like it is today. So yeah. And and even, go for it. Sorry. Yeah. I wanted to add to that because it, it is, it is a very difficult thing to, to label correctly or label in a satisfying way. I mean, we use Greek Old Testaments uh, a bunch throughout the book. And that is satisfying to some degree, but also not to a full degree, because, of course, there's a distinction that many draw in the academy between the Old Testament, which is a Christian label, for the Hebrew Bible. And um, so, you know, I had this exchange with a guy on Twitter who was like all upset that we called it the Greek Old Testament and he considered <clears throat> this a category failure. Um, because the Septuagint, quote unquote, typically includes, quote unquote, the uh, Apocrypha or Pseudepigrapha, and uh, those are not part of the Hebrew Bible. So you get into this problem of uh, sort of a Venn diagram of things that may or may not be part of the Septuagint. Yeah, I think that's a helpful distinction, too, because even with the name Septuagint, it's not just kind of a name they randomly placed on it. It comes from kind of a supposed heritage of, of how it was constructed, where there's these 70 scholars, all of them found the same manuscripts, they all translated and all, it all came to, to one. So you've already kind of talked about that, but why, why is that kind of an insufficient way of describing how this came about? Um, yeah, that, that story is from something called the Letter of Aristeas. And it is a story that's recounted in a couple of other ancient sources like Josephus, uh, and I think Philo as well. And the basic, the basic idea is that Ptolemy, who is the king of Hellenistic Egypt in the third century, basically commissioned Jews from Judea to come on down to Egypt and please translate your law code into Greek for me so mm. I can put it into my library. And so uh, the tale is very elaborate and detailed, but that's the basic idea. These uh, 72 translators... Um, came down and all worked on it at once separately. And they found that their translations all matched word for word. Um, and so it was blessed by God and all sorts of things like this. Now it's been basically recognized as a legend since the early modern period. And, and at this point, some people do find some historical credibility to the legend. Um, mm -hmm. But for the most part, it's recognized as a, 
a way that the Jewish community in Hellenistic Egypt uh, was portraying their scriptures in Greek as bearing a similar level of authority as scripture uh, as the Hebrew version itself. So that's part of it. Hmm. Okay. I'm not sure we answered the original question about why do people not know about it, but it, it seems hmm. like basically there's a couple of different factors. One is the Bible that people buy for worship in English or Spanish or what have you is not by and large with the, except for the, the Orthodox church is not derived from it. So you're only going to see it because it's from the Hebrew. So you're only going to see it in footnotes and you see them as early as Genesis two and certain translations like the CSB you see in like Genesis four and the ESV and NIV, but it's a complicated word, kind of a scary word that's buried in the footnotes. And so your average layperson's probably never even noticed it. Mm. And it, mm. it's hard to pronounce. It seems intimidating. Mm. And so mm. it's just sort of better to ignore it. Uh, <laughs> I think from, from a large uh, sort of just a layperson perspective. Yeah. It, but even kind of in, in a sense, too, with and we'll, we'll talk about this maybe a little bit more, more later is, I mean, depending on and I, I know you got this is your this is your scholarship, which what you guys do. So in effect, are, are, are we reading Septuagint quotes in the New Testament, though, with, with how authors are pulling from Old Testament stuff? Are they pulling from the Greek? So in a, like in a sense, are we reading some of the Septuagint and should it be better known because of that? Yes. And a lot of folks who certainly like for, like for instance me uh as a new testament guy we we fall in love with the field of Septuagint studies because of that factor um and it's 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 an it's sort of a yes and no answer yes in one sense you could say that sometimes in fact quite frequently new testament authors like paul when they are engaging with the old testament will do so in a form that is greek uh not necessarily directly from the hebrew tradition and it just so happens that many times it will match more or less verbatim with what we can find mm. on Amazon that is called the Septuagint, which is the critically reconstructed uh, old Greek text. Uh, sometimes they might be drawing from a different Greek tradition, and we can sometimes verify that. We need to talk about that in the book. That maybe isn't the sort of mainstream version that we have today, uh, but is a, a different version. So broadly speaking, yes, they do often interact with the Greek and so we are engaging with it quite often when you know in Romans or wherever, uh, but it's not exclusive. It's pretty clear that at times Matthew, John, uh, Paul will also they appear to be going with the Hebrew version of something, huh. uh, mm. even though you know there was a Greek alternative that was at their disposal. Okay. Of course, all of it's written in Greek, but mm. you know, they're somehow independently accessing the original Hebrew in some way, whatever that is. So there's actually a whole lot more. There's a lot of moving parts. Um, yeah. Which yeah. Is part of the, the fun, but also part of the, that's why it took a hundood and some odd pages to, to write this <laughs> yeah. book. Right? Yeah. Which I'm sure it could have been much, much, much longer than what it was. Right. right. Um, so it sounds, so it sounds like the Septuagint is the translation of the Hebrew original Hebrew Bible into Greek in the old Testament. And um, it starts at the Pentateuch and then it moves on to the rest of the old Testament um so it sounds like i have that correct right uh yeah yeah i mean there's i think we could add a little bit to that in some ways uh on a mo basic level mm -hmm. um it wasn't done by the same group of people you know all at once mm -hmm. with the okay. general exception of the pentateuch um generally speaking septuagint scholarship has has agreed that the pentateuch was probably translated by five individuals, one person per book, each book, uh, and that they approached it as a group 
in uh, sort of a collaborative fashion uh, and that it was approached as a project, I think um, it's probably reasonable to see it as somewhat commissioned as so to speak by the Jewish community in Egypt um, as a sort of kickoff for, for what would become a broader project within Hellenistic Judaism in general. But that would take many centuries um, and it was not centralized in any particular way uh, or organized from what we, what we can tell. So we don't know really anything about who, who did it, uh, when and where beyond maybe a few exceptions. Hmm. This is very different than the NIV translation committee or what have hmm. you that has oversight and you know, identifiable scholars. It's just a very fundamentally different thing. Yeah. And so, so calling it the problem is calling it the Septuagint. That's yeah. probably where we get hung up is, you know, using oh, the article okay. there is, is makes it it's a whole can of worms. <laughs> yeah. Okay. yeah. Um, and so kind of diving into the to the actual translation itself. So you have a you have a chapter on how was it translated. And so it was translated from Hebrew, I'm assuming. I'm, I'm guessing most people are assuming it's translated from Hebrew. Mm-hmm. Um, it's we, we talked you talked a little bit about the process and, and, the, and some of the scholars, but effectively why why was there a need to translate the Septuagint translate from Hebrew into Greek at this time what what, what was what was kind of going around that they said yeah we need to do this yeah right so um, Hebrew had largely uh, sort of fallen out of use as a vernacular spoken language among all Jews around the time of the Babylonian exile um, there was some use of Hebrew all the way through the uh, early Christian era, but it was limited and becoming more and more, um, you could say, confined to religious settings um, and religious use. So Aramaic is taking over the Mediterranean world in the Persian era and, and before that. And then ultimately Greek would kind of layer over that as the, as the lingua franca, the, the language of trade. So, um, kind of depending on where you are geographically in the Mediterranean world, uh, by the time you are, you are in the third, second century BC, you're either speaking Aramaic or Greek, or probably in most cases, both, uh, possibly plus another third language. So it's a very multilingual context, um, historical period. And in Egypt, where there's been a community of Jews since at least the fifth century. Um, there's been a Jewish community there. We know from um, some of the archaeological evidence in a place called Elephantini, which is an island uh, in the Nile River in Upper Egypt. Uh, this community has been Greek speaking for quite a while by the time uh, the Greek Pentateuch is produced. So, um, why did they do it? Well, there's probably a couple of reasons. But one of the big reasons most people agree is that they didn't, most, most Jews couldn't read Hebrew anymore. Um, and uh, the desire to use it for religious purpose, home or in a more organized worship setting was just sort of a basic prompt to get, to get their scriptures into the language they were using as their hmm. first language. Okay. So kind of, so it's, uh, it's not unlike your Wycliffe to the world, right? Yeah, as I, was, I was about to say, it's almost in a sense, it's like translating the Bible into English. We don't speak those languages. We can't read it. Right. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Gotcha. Yeah, uh, I like how, oh, go ahead, Peter. No, go for it. Um, in the book, you actually made our job 
really super easy. You have 10 key questions about the Septuagint. <laughs> so, so when I do the, when we do these interviews, we're trying to think of uh, questions up uh, beforehand and, and you just kind of did 10 of them for us, but we're not going to go. Don't worry. We're not going to do all 10. I saw you guys get a little nervous. You're like, oh, so ask me 10. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I just want to pick out number eight. Um, how does, does the Greek old Testament have any authority in today's church? Hmm. I can take that one, Will, um, in, in many respects. And we, we devote a whole chapter to that question. Yep, in the book. Yep. And so uh, I think we position that chapter as in many respects, especially for a, you know, a broadly evangelical leaning audience, that's going to be a hot topic question. Yeah. Whether you are a, a KJV onlyist, certain KJV onlyists even deny the existence of the Septuagint, the cult Septuagint. Uh, or just a person who's interested. I mean, it is a fundamental question. I was even asked this question uh, by by my colleague Charles Hill uh, during my ordination exam. He, he asked, oh. said, "Okay, should we use the Septuagint as Christian as the Christian Old Testament?" I got the same question. Uh, so that was that was good times. Um, <laughs> I guess you get that and, when you're a scholar. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, actually, another, a pastor asked as well. So huh. um, there's been a movement uh, within certain parts of scholarship to say that since the apostles, at least some of them, sometimes use the Greek Old Testament, we should treat it as the Christian Old Testament and use it for doctrine and use it in place of the Hebrew. And that's not a new question. That was going back all the way to some of the church fathers, namely uh, Origen and uh, Augustine in particular, but also Jerome. Uh, in terms of both text and canon. Um, and so it is a really important question. Uh, the short answer is, and we, we obviously lay this out in much more detail, you know, we're persuaded from the historical evidence that in terms of the place that we can point to and say this is the inspired words from God, the inspired word of God given to Moses and the prophets, that the Hebrew text, as we can best reconstruct it with what we have, is that, is that thing uh, that we could call loosely scripture. Yeah. Uh, or imperfectly scripture. That's that's sort of the apostolic way of describing it. And so uh, in, in terms of what you would hang your hat on for determining faith and doctrine and practice, that would be it. That being said, um, much like the English analogy, a pastor today or anyone today would stand up and they're going to read their Old Testament, Jonah, Exodus, whatever, from English or Spanish or Portuguese. And they're going to call that the word of God. Uh, because it is. It's the word of God in translation for his people, so far as it is faithfully done and so forth. You can treat it that way, even if you don't know Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And so we landed on that as kind of the best way to think about the Septuagint, that it is, uh, as a translation, deriving its authority from the Hebrew. You can approach it in a loose way as the word of God. It certainly was the word of God for thousands, if not millions, of early Christians and, and actually some Jews. Um, who didn't have facility. I mean, that was the whole reason why I was translated. So we're comfortable with calling it that with, with certain caveats that, mm -hmm. A, it's not a perfect translation, just like the ESV or NIV is not a perfect translation, and that's why you learn the languages and try to sort it out. Um, and as long as you ultimately realize that any authority it has is derived upstream from the Hebrew. Um, and so that's, that's a more complicated hmm. way to answer the question, but we, cause it, I think people want a binary answer either. Yes. 
or absolutely not. And I, I repudiate it because it's dangerous or something like that for the tinfoil hat idea. <laughs> uh, but we think it's much more faithful to what it is and how it's been received historically to, to position it that way. I don't know if, mm. if you want to add anything to it. Yeah, no, I think that's, uh, I think that's helpful. And just to draw out a little bit of um, just the whole idea where there are some kind of more restrictive views that would uh, reject the Septuagint in some way outright. A lot of times uh, there's a couple of different reasons that happens, but it all tends to get folded into a more uh, strictly KJV only mindset. And in, in many cases, it's related to, again, this sort of category error where you're viewing the Septuagint as a, as a bound book that is uh, sort of an all-in-one thing. And um, the idea going back to the citation in the New Testament, the idea that any part of the Septuagint would be cited by Jesus or the apostles would grant authority, uh, the same level of authority to all the other non-canonical books that are quote unquote part of the Septuagint um, it is sort of the assumption. Mm. And that's why it's, it's rejected uh, either outright or, or called fraud or something like that. So it's, it's a category mistake, but that is part of um, that kind of thinking in general can be part of the way, part of the reason that there's um, uh, uh, hesitancy or reticence to, to think about what kind of authority the Septuagint might have. So we hope the taxonomy we have in the chapter can break things down a little bit more simply. Mm. Yeah, that's a, that's a helpful distinction. Yeah, it's something I, th I think I've thought about before where, yeah, it's a, it's a, it is faithful to the word of God as far as it's faithful to the original manuscripts as we right. can reconstruct right. it. That's, that's a really, that's, that's not a way I've thought about it before. It's a really helpful way of thinking about the Septuagint, yeah. which I think that's all. A lot, of folk, a lot of folks will say, you know, if a new, if Paul quotes from it, does that, in, does that sort of, I don't know, impute it with some sort of inspired quality? And the answer mm -hmm. to that is clearly no. He quotes yeah. from pagan philosophers. That doesn't work backwards and somehow yeah. like contagiously make the entirety of Menander or Epimenides or whomever inspired. It just means that portion of it mm -hmm. is being used in an inspired writing. Um, yeah. So <clears throat> I think just even making that clarification is helpful for folks to realize, okay, you know, that any given translation of the Hebrew Bible is, is mixed in quality. We mm -hmm. can demonstrate that. Um, but on the whole, it's pretty faithful. Uh, it varies by book. And, and Paul using it doesn't mean that all of it is 100%, you know, the ipsissima of verba of God. Um, it, it just means that it's useful for the point that he is trying to make to a Greek audience at Corinth or what have you. So, yeah, who can't read Hebrew? <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, that's true. Uh, and that's that's a good transition to the kind of the last part of this, which is which is why does why does the Septuagint matter? And I, I think both of these questions, chapters five and chapter six, cover the entirety of the of the Bible. So um, this one kind of more directed towards you, Dr. Ross, is how how does the way it's been translated, its history. How do these things, I know it's kind of a broad range, but how, how do these things help us understand when we read the Greek Septuagint how, or the Greek uh, translation of the Old Testament? How do these things influence, help us, hinder us, whatever it may be when we're looking at the Old Testament itself? Yeah, yeah, that's, it's, that is a broad question. I mean, it's basically the whole discipline of Septuagint studies yeah. <laughs> um, in a certain way. Um, there 30 are lots. seconds go yeah, right. <laughs> everything yeah. you exist to do go yeah <laughs> this is why you're Boy, trained yeah. to do this <laughs> um 
So historically, the Septuagint has been used as a text critical witness to the Old Testament. Mm. Um, you know, as you're trying to reconstruct the Hebrew text, you want to gather all the existing readings in Hebrew, Aramaic, whatever language. Um, and prior to the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Septuagint was the oldest witness we had to the Masoretic tradition of the Hebrew Bible. So um, historically, that's been a, a major purpose, and it remains one uh, for studying the Septuagint mm. is, is to analyze what kind of translation are we looking at, and how does it relate to the Hebrew text, uh, text critically. So that's, that's certainly one big reason. Um, another big reason is to understand the context, the religious and social context of the people who produced it, right? So the Jewish, uh, Greek-speaking Jewish community living uh, in various parts of the Mediterranean world, mostly in Egypt, um, trying to understand how uh, their use of language, the Greek language, fits into the broader um, sort of scope of language use, uh, the social context, like I said, and, and uh, there are various ways that scholarship has has really pretty recently started to think about that sort of question. Hmm. Um, third thing I'll say, and then I'll finish with a fourth. Third thing is sort of similar to the second, but the Septuagint is a big, big uh, bucket of post-classical Greek language. Uh, and so there is a lot of uh, work in Septuagint scholarship thinking about the Septuagint from a linguistic perspective and thinking about translation theory and register and um, style and things like that. And then the fourth thing is, um, is again, kind of going back to New Testament use in what ways does the, does the language, the translation, the text of the Septuagint influence New Testament writers, not only when they are citing New Testament texts, but when they are um, thinking or theologizing, so to speak, uh, and creating their arguments based on scripture. So that's. Uh, I hope that tees up your next question for you. Yeah, and that yeah, that goes yeah it goes into the to the New Testament part. So thinking both probably what most people are, are most aware of is the, is the Old Testament quotations and the New Testament. Um, and, and so maybe kind of a I'm, I'm I'm trying to channel my my inner member here is like why why is why are these New Testament authors citing the Septuagint or how are they citing Septuagint? How, how does that play into how we interpret the New Testament? Is, is this, is it like a one-to-one ratio? Are, are we, are we saying, okay, they're, they're doing this or then this? Um, yeah. How, how does knowing that they are quoting whatever you want to call it, the, the collection of, of Greek writings in the Old Testament, how does that influence how we read the New Testament when they quote it? Yeah, so that that's my existence in thirty seconds. Um, <laughs> yeah. There's a, there's a, a lot of different ways you can answer that. One big picture answer um, that I find to be encouraging and helpful is that the fact that they do it at all to me is significant uh, because it it would be think if I okay let's say Will's going to preach on Sunday, uh, he could flex and he could stand up and just start start reading the Hebrew. <laughs> uh, because that actually is the inspired, that's the locus of inspiration, but he doesn't do that. He's going to use the, the English because what is he trying to do? He's trying to minister to people who speak that language and he wants yeah. the word to be accessible to them. So if Paul is writing to the churches, you know, a church in Thessalonica, you know, 
by all most likely close to zero of them uh, have any awareness of Hebrew at all. Um, maybe some scattered Jews in, in that area could, but uh, in the synagogue or something like that. So the fact that he's going to gravitate towards the Greek text shows that he's essentially trying to use their, for lack of a better term, their pew Bible, the one that they're familiar with, the one they can read, hmm. because he wants them to see what God has said. Um, to, to me, I think that actually speaks volumes hmm. in terms yeah. of the mission of the church that actually, that we, one of the things we talk about in the book, there was never a movement, even though there was a Judaizing movement in terms of circumcision, there was never a linguistic Judaizing movement that like to be a Christian, you got to go learn Hebrew. Uh, to be able to use the Old Testament. They were more than happy to use the vernacular language, even if it had its limitations. Um, they were more than happy to use that because the goal was to spread the gospel to all nations. So that, that from a theological perspective, I think is quite interesting and important. Mm, yeah. Uh, but in terms of the nitty gritty details, uh, essentially what you have is kind of a big spectrum. Uh, and the spectrum runs from very close adherence to what we have in the Hebrew tradition, oftentimes distinct from what we have in the Greek tradition uh, for certain passages in Isaiah or whatever. And so sometimes the New Testament author would be very close to the Hebrew. Yeah. Sometimes they'll be word for word close to what we have in Greek in the best manuscripts for Genesis, whatever, Leviticus 19. And then otherwise you have this spectrum where there could be, uh, you know, Matthew could be updating the passage and changing a verb tense. He could be rearranging the wording. You know, Paul mm -hmm. might be splicing two bits together. In Romans 9, in certain cases, he almost blends what he might know from memory from the Hebrew with what he knows from the Greek that's in front of him. Yeah. There's no guarantee either that, that, that every single synagogue or every single church has the exact same copy of Greek Genesis. There's going to be textual diversity there as well. And so it could be because of that. Wherever Paul is, he's going to go to the synagogue, grab the copy of Habakkuk they have, and he's going to use that. So it's actually, from one perspective, it's bewilderingly complex to look at, call it 400, 500, 600 citations, quotations, et cetera, and see just how much diversity there is when you just yeah. go and look it up in the ESV. Uh, but that's also pretty exciting because it shows you that uh, there's a lot of different ways that are interacting mm -hmm. with the Old Testament. It could be from memory, it could be from what they learned growing up in, in church, so to speak, in yeah. synagogue. Uh, it could be a local text in Hebrew. It could be a local text in Greek. I mean, some even argue it's they're accessing it via Aramaic. I mean, there's a lot of different options. And so it's hard to really pin down, like always go look it up in the quote unquote Septuagint. Sometimes that works, but other times it doesn't. Mm. Um, and so it's actually for me, that's exciting. I guess for others that could be, uh, I don't know, terrifying. <laughs> yeah. No, that's that's actually that's, I think it's a helpful way for people to think about the Septuagint. Yeah, it's a complex issue, but it, I think it makes sense. And it's it's encouraging, I think, for a lot of people to hear that these were done for the purpose of spreading the gospel for the vernacular, for people who are in this area who only speak this language or may speak a little bit of both and say, Oh, he's using my language. He's quoting from my language. I know what he's talking about. Um, and that's, that's a really helpful way. I think of describing this stuff that I haven't really heard before. So kind of kind of land in the plane before we, before we end this um, if Nick has anything else after this. So after reading this book and which has been kind of a nice, like a Septuagint, um, renaissance of, of some sorts where like there's been a lot of scholarship on it lately at least popular level scholarship that we haven't seen before or at least I haven't seen before but what are you hoping people take away from this book maybe big picture because they're probably not going to look at the Greek 
Old Testament and say, oh, let's dive into this a bit further. So for your average person, although if they want to, we have an we have an option that they should. Yeah, exactly. Yes, if they want to, yeah, they're more than welcome to do it. We have a we have a cool giveaway on this stuff too that we're we're partnering with with Hendrickson to do. Um, But for your average person sitting in the pew, listening to their pastor preach the New Testament, preach the Old Testament, what are you hoping if they're reading this? And I'm assuming there's some who are reading this. What are you hoping they come away with after reading this book? Yeah, I'll I'll take a stab. I think um, one of the things I hope people gain from this is a better understanding of the sort of multi-layered aspects of how scripture uh, was written and passed down over the centuries um, and and into the uh, era where the New Testament was written um, especially for the Old Testament, obviously, um, because I think we, in speaking, we speaking broadly of the uh, sort of Presbyterian Reformed and even evangelical worlds have a, a oftentimes unconsciously simplistic understanding of how it must have gone. And most of, most of seminary students that I you know, interact with haven't spent a whole lot of time thinking about it, and it doesn't come up in a whole lot of detail in many seminary courses. So yeah. I think I think one thing I would like for this book to do is plug that hole a little bit. Um, it's it's not the full picture, but it does it does fill in um, a big part of it. And I think it will refine some of the things that tend to be generalized or assumed. Again, to going back to the idea of the sort mm. of what is the it that we're talking about. Um, those those assumptions and generalizations can uh, create um, errors and and faults in the sorts of ways that you're thinking about scripture and and so I hope that this can help uh, help the church refine that to a certain extent um, taking a complicated topic and making it straightforward um, is challenging but I hope that's what we we've mm. done here yeah great Doctor yeah, if there's anything would- else. Yeah, I would agree. I think that's probably the main thing from my perspective as well. I, I think a lot of folks functionally have a very brittle doctrine of Scripture. Mm. And the Septuagint, in, for someone who has a very brittle, uh, brittle, overly simplistic doctrine of Scripture, the Septuagint can really kind of crush you. Mm. It can push you over the edge, just like the synoptic problem. Is yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and I actually find that the more I work on the Septuagint, and I hope, I assume Will feels the same way, the more it doesn't sort of cause me to lose sleep at night. It actually, it gives me a more robust, a more well-rounded, a more realistic, a more historically grounded doctrine of scripture. And that's what I want folks to have, because that's what will ultimately sort of withstand whatever the latest attacks from, you know, blog posts or whatever, you know, what have you are going to gonna try to do. And so I think the Septuagint is a big part of that, where I want people to have a mature, well-balanced, well-articulated understanding of how scripture came together as opposed to really a sort of a quasi-Mormon view, which is I think what mm, a lot of folks yeah. have, like sort of golden tablets that just sort of appeared, uh, which is obviously not not historically true, nor is that the reform position. So, yeah. but it's a, it's a practical position that many people have. So that, that'd probably be my, my goal as well. So very similar to Will's. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's great. I mean, that's, I think this would be a huge service to the church. Yeah, like you said, plugging in a little bit of that, that gap where I think some scholarship has come in, but it's really technical, but I think this book comes in at a, at a, at a very kind of not easy, but it's a digestible way of, 
of understanding this in a, in a comprehensive way. So yeah, thanks for writing this book. Thanks for, thanks for the service of the church and hopefully people pick this up, learn a little bit more. And, and they're, like you said, their doctrine of scripture um, expands, they understand it a little bit better. Cool. Absolutely. Hey guys, we hope you enjoyed that episode of our podcast, Guilt, Grace, Gratitude. And we, as we've said before, we are bridging the gap to Reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. So we would like to make sure this is enjoyed by others around the world. And how to best do that is rate and review us on iTunes. Yeah, and you, after you rate a review or instead of rate and review or doing everything all in once, retweeting us on Twitter, liking us on Twitter, liking us on Instagram, following us on both of those platforms, because that actually puts in front of people's physical face, this podcast, these guests, and most importantly, the gospel, the doctrines uh, that these guests are bringing in front of you guys. So please do that. It helps get in front of more people. Amen. And hopefully you guys are part of a local church and you're tithing and, uh, after that, after tithing, if you have any means left over, please consider donating to us to make sure our bridge is well paved and maintained and strong and sturdy. As again, we bridge the gap to reform Christian <laughs> theology. Exactly. The yeah. And you guys can find that link on Anchor, our official Anchor website. If you just go on um, our social media links, it'll, it'll link you to that website. It's also at the bottom of these this podcast show notes. If you're on this podcast, this specific episode, scroll all the way to the bottom of that show notes and you guys will find a link for this for three different options of donating. So we hope you guys can help us bridge the gap, pay for shipping, get nicer stuff, all for the focus of spreading the gospel further. Yep, all for the kingdom of God. Thanks so much, guys. We'll see you guys next time. <laughs>